Okay, so um, over Lent, we're almost at the end of Lent, where, um, some of you may have signed up to um, 40 Acts, um, which is an email from um, an organisation called Stewardship. Um, some of you, may, like me, have, may have signed up for the email but failed to actually do some of them, or all of them. But it's still good to get them and it's still good to be challenged by them. But the challenge that they've set us is, um, during this period of Lent is to, um, is to engage in Lent by um, being generous. Um, so while we've been doing that through the week, we've, um, we've also been continuing um, looking at that on a Sunday um, in various ways. So I'll just quickly recap for those of you who weren't here. If you aren't and you have, if you missed them, then they're all available online. Um, you can catch up. But the first week, start, Steve started off just by looking at what it means to be generous and that it's not just a calling to be generous, but it's an honour to be generous. And the Bible makes it clear that our offering of time, money, belongings, and even our bodies is an act of worship. And then Ken came and spoke. I was meant to speak that week, and after preparing for this one, wish I'd just stuck to the first one, because this one seems a lot harder. Um, he came and spoke about um, the idea that everybody gets to play, and the, the idea of using our gifts, um, that we've got to be generous towards others, and that we've all got a part to play. And then Anya came and spoke about serving others with a generous heart, that service without sincere love is worthless. So as we seek to be generous, we also need to look at our motivations and mindset. And then last week, Paul, after he stole quite a big chunk of my sermon, <laughs> sorry, I'll kick that over, we'll ruin the new carpet, um, went on to um, look at how we live generously as emotional beings when our feelings can get in the way. And how we bless others when we aren't appreciated, or even worse, when we get rejected and abused. And how generous service develops humili humility and must be motivated by love. And that the same love that we've received from God. So this morning we're going to continue the theme um, and look at what it means to live generously when it hurts. So we're going to look a bit more of what Paul started off with last week. Um, we're going to look at what it means to follow Jesus' example by showing generosity, by loving those who we feel don't deserve it. And the next week, as Steve said, is Palm Sunday. So we're going to, um, as you've been hearing, you're probably sick of hearing it, but it's good to hear it again. Um, we're going to ask you to respond in two different ways next week. Um, the first is in service. So as you've seen, if you've been over the last few weeks, we've had people coming up from the various teams we're looking to fill the teams a bit more, to bolster those um, as we prepare for the next season of growth. So if you're serving in a, in a team already, next Sunday we're going to ask you to recommit to that if you feel that that's what you're going to do. Or if you're not serving, then we're going to look at, um, we're going to ask you to com commit to a team. Um, and we'll have some way of signing up. Um, and then we'll all follow you all up and how you can get involved. And then also the second thing is we're going to ask people to respond financially. Um, as you know, as you can see, we've done upstairs and it's looking great. There's a few little bits to do, but I think we'd all say that the guys who've done it have done a great job. Um, so now our attention turns to downstairs. Um, you can, you've got those pictures. I took some pictures because I didn't know if... So that's what downstairs looks like currently. What one end, that's going to be the cafe, so that's where you all have a cup of tea and a coffee. Um, and then the next one is the other way. So that's going to be an auditorium, it looks bigger, bigger in real life. 
Um, but we think we'll probably get about 300 people down there. But as you can see, we couldn't get now. I think the health and safety executive would have a hissy fit if we went down there now. So that's what it looks like. We thought that'd be helpful. It looks like a lot of work, but what we've tried to do is we're going to try and break it down. We need um, a big chunk of money, but what we're going to ask you to do next week is come and, and, and perhaps give a day's salary. Um, and we thought if we could all do that, then we'd, we'd, we would, with gift aid, we might get about £25,000, which would at least get the, the project started downstairs. Okay. So... Continue on. I'm doing time. I'm fine. So this week we're gonna um, we're gonna look at what it means to be generous when it hurts. Um, we've been looking at Romans 12 over the last few weeks, and so this is the end part of Romans 12. Um, so I'll just read from Romans 12:17 to 20. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to check that I'm not making it up, then now's a good time to do that. I'm just gonna move this around because I feel that I've got my back to these people. I'll talk to you now, Fia. I told Steve that I have hide behind this when I'm preaching as a sort of defence mechanism, so I'm trying to not stand behind it. Um, it says, do not repay anyone, anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty... Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So, I've got the easy one this week with this. Um, a hint of sarcasm. So this passage is, pro- is arguably some of the most challenging teaching in the Bible. The concept of being generous to those who persecute us or being generous to those who we find it really difficult to be generous towards. It's not just hard, it's flat out impossible. But it's good sometimes to have impossible things because in order to have supernatural behaviour to do these things, we've got to come back to Jesus on a moment-by-moment basis. We can't do this stuff in our own strength. It's not in our nature to be nice to the people that persecute us. So last week, Paul, our Paul, not this Paul, I'm talking about this that Paul, touched on touched on blessing those who persecute us. But now, Paul, this Paul, (laughs) should change your name, Paul, expands on this idea and addresses the very real feelings and temptations that can arise when we are victims of other people's wrong actions. Here we see that we're even called to act generously to those people that we call our enemies. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it hard to act generously towards the people I actually like. But here, Paul's telling us that generosity needs to extend to the people that we don't like, that we disagree with, that persecute us or wrong us in some way. Up to now, we've been looking at what it looks like to be generous to those it's easy to be generous towards sometimes. But let's be honest, this is my challenge this week, how can we be generous to the people that it's easy to be generous, uh, sorry, be generous to the people it's hard to be generous to? the ones who persecute us and offend us and upset us if we can't learn to be generous with the easy ones. So if you have missed the other week, go and listen to those ones, do that and then try this. And the Bible is very clear. It tells us that living as, follow- living as followers of Jesus does not provide immunity from trouble. Um, in fact, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 
that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So it's going to happen. But just like our motivation for serving is more important than the service, these verses highlight how it's how we handle the unjust treatment that's important. So as, as I was preparing for this talk, I must be honest, um, when I do a talk, I don't do it very often, but when I do, I, I can usually relate to it in some way. I really struggle with this one because I don't ever feel that I've been persecuted. Not in a, a real sense, not in some of the things that you see on the news or you hear in books. Um, you know, it's a pretty safe country to live in and be a Christian. Um, you might get a bit of jibe or something, but our lives aren't ever in danger. As far as I know, none of you have put your life in danger to come here. It depends how badly the driver is who drove you here. Um, you may have put your life in danger there, but that's not really the same. You know, we're not going to get thrown in jail for coming to church or following Jesus. But I'm sure many of you have felt wronged or hurt. At some point, we've all been in a position where someone has done something to make us look bad or to look, make us look stupid or... They've angered us in some way. I, I can think of plenty of those examples. Um, and in those situations, it can be tempting to want revenge. Um, at the very least, it can be going and tell someone else what that person's done and to kind of drag their name through the mud, even if you don't go and deal with that person direct. You know, you go and tell someone, oh, you never guess what so-and-so did to me. Isn't he a horrible person? You bring their name into, um, into question. And we may not think that that's revenge if we're not going after that person. It's not like you've gone and smashed at their house, which would be slight over-exaggeration. After all, they were the ones who started it, so surely that's what they deserve. They were the ones who did the original thing to you. And at least, the very least, they can deserve the same medicine as you've had. Give them a taste of their own medicine. But if our actions are laced with frustration and anger, then the chances are we're acting outside of what God wants for us. And in this passage, Paul is warning us not to take justice into our own hands. He's not saying that the people who do wrong shouldn't be punished. He's not saying that. In fact, at the beginning of Romans 13, I say punished in a human way, at the beginning of Romans 13, he makes it very clear that we should submit to the governing body. So if someone's done something illegal, then it's okay for them to deal with the police and deal with the justice system. They're called to submit to the governing bodies. But rather, this is all about taking personal revenge, taking th- matters into our own hands. I've got a note here. I wasn't going to say this. But has anyone watched Dog the Bounty Hunter? Is it just me? It's like my best show ever. I was trying to weave an illustration here about Dog the Bounty Hunter, and I couldn't really. But if you haven't watched Dog the Bounty Hunter, go and watch it. It is the best. I'll leave it at that. Well, the premise is he goes in <laughs> and, he's, and he's got to get the bad guys. And the guy professes to be a Christian. I don't, know, I don't know, but he professes to be a Christian. And they all stand around in a circle and pray. And it all's lovely until they kick someone's door down <laughs> and shove mace in their face and, and like reap justice on it. It's brilliant. Just go and watch it. Brilliant. It is amazing. It's on some random Sky channel, but... Sure, you'll find it. Anyway, okay, so I've tried to break this down. So living generously means living with integrity. There we go. So we're going to work our way through this verse. It says, be careful and do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
So this, this part is talking about living in complete integrity. May, may seem slightly contradictory of Paul to be telling us to do what is right in both the eyes of man and God. Um, surely, if we're doing, doing what is right by God, then that's all that matters. But this, but this passage isn't telling us to bend to other people's, whim, um, other people's will. We're not meant to compromise in order to keep people happy. This isn't about people-pleasing. Paul is talking about being beyond reproach. People may not like us, but we need them to look at us and see that we have done what we've done or what we've said with integrity. They might not agree with what we've said, but they can see that it's with integrity. We're not to lose our moral, not to lose our moral compass or even our sense of justice if people wrong us. The Bible tells us that God will make his judgment. After all, who wants to be at the end of God's wrath? Judgment, judgment is God's job, not yours. But here we are called to be careful to do what is right. This is about what's doing right in public and what is right in private. So there's no point in putting a face on and saying, I'm going to be generous towards this person because they've wronged me, but in private, resent them and not act generous towards them. You've got to do it in both places. Making sure our actions are beyond reproach and that our love and generosity is genuine. And this is not about doing good deeds or being generous in order to be praised or admired. We're not to be consumed with pleasing others. It's about making the right choices so that our love for others is not contradicted by a lousy attitude or gossiping behind closed doors. If we live generous lives, serving serving generously with our gifts and finances, and love generously even when our feelings are fragile, then we are reflecting the character of God because that's what God, how God acts, that's how God is. So if we do it, we are reflecting the character of God. And you've got to remember that we serve an outrageously generous God. It's in Philippians 2.15, it says, They will see their good deeds and God's goodness shining amongst them like stars and praise God. But I don't know about you, but I want to live, my, I'd love, I want to live a life that reflects, that draws attention away from me and draws attention towards God. To be honest, a lot of the time I get it spectacularly wrong. Um, but when we follow God's love, uh, God's laws with such goodness and love, people around us can't help but notice when we act with integrity. And loving and being generous to our enemies is one of the most radical ways we can demonstrate that our cap- capacity for goodness has a supernatural source. Because people just don't do it. People aren't nice to the people who aren't nice to them. In the original Greek, the words that's translated here says, be careful is a word, proneo. The Greek scholars have probably pronounced that wrong. Um, but it basically means to take thought beforehand. So it's got ton- connotations of planning and, and meditating before something happens. So Paul, here, Paul is telling us to prepare. When he says, be careful to do what is right, he's telling us to prepare so we make the right choices. If we're ready to respond with love and generosity to our enemy... We must thoughtfully prepare before a crisis arises. So when it does, when these things happen and people persecute us, we've thought about how we need to respond rather than just responding from our humanness. We need to focus on God and ask the Holy Spirit to act within us when these matters arise. And if we respond correctly in these situations, we ultimately point people towards Jesus. 
So my mum, not my stepmum, just not talking about her. My mum isn't a Christian, and she probably won't listen to this, so I can talk about her. It's fine. <laughs> it's not bad on her. Forgive me if it is. But, we, but when, I, when I'm with her, when I'm on the phone to her, and something upsets me, and I react in a certain way, she'll come back and she'll say, that's not a very Christian attitude, Pete. And it really bothers me. It really winds me up. Because on a simplistic level, she's right. It seems a really silly thing to say and a really silly thing to be annoyed about. But it, on a really simplistic level, it isn't. It, she's right. It isn't very Christian if we react badly to people or we repay evil with evil. So being ready to respond in the correct way when we feel wronged or hurt in some way is necessary to, be, to avoid being caught off guard and repaying with evil with evil. So if we've already reflected and prayed and thought about how we react in these situations, we're less likely, in the heat of the moment, to follow our emotions and to react badly. So how would you respond if you've got children? How would you respond if one of your children has been bullied, for example? How would I respond if my daughter was being bullied? In fact, just this week... Um, Eleanor was at nursery and we were sitting around the table having dinner and she was telling us how this little girl at nursery had made her cry by calling her a baby. And my chest immediately puffed up. I said, who's this little girl, Eleanor? <laughs> and before she could reply, Andy piped up and went, whoa, calm down, Papa Bear. And she was like, what was I going to do to this three-year-old girl who was going to hold her neck against the wall? Don't you talk to my daughter like that. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. But I immediately, you know, right, let's go and sort her out. Come on, Eleanor. (laughs) Or how do I respond when our student neighbours, may God love them, (laughs) keep us awake with their parties... Um, and they're all in the street shouting at three o'clock in the morning. I can tell you what I'd like to go and do to them. Um, but I don't think I will, because I'm sure your opinion of me will change. So in those situations, how do we react is important. We need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the gift of generosity, even to those people who offend us, hurt and persecute us. We need to be ready to respond in a godly way. We need to be ready to act Christian, in the words of my mum. So living generously also means making the right choice. Falls asleep. There we go. So peace is a choice. It says here, um, Paul is telling us to live at peace with everyone. And this is not always possible. But we, we need to do all we can to live at peace with those who have wronged us. It's up to us to be the, the carriers of peace. With the help of the Holy Spirit to make the right choice and show extravagant generosity when we are wronged. Most of us, like I said earlier, most of us will probably go through life without any kind of extreme persecution, without really ever being threatened because of what we believe. Um, we are, like I said, we are blessed in comparison to other countries that you see on the news. But sometimes it can be extreme. In Samuel, um, 1 Samuel 24, we read um, about Saul and David. A lot of you will know this. Um, they had one of their spats. They didn't, it's pretty safe to say they didn't get on, these two. Um, 
Saul wasn't a massive fan of David. Um, and it came to a head, um, and David goes into the wilderness to hide from Saul. Um, and his met and Saul's men um, come, and they try and hunt him down, and they're going to try and kill David. So Saul, as often happens, gets caught short um, and goes into a cave. It says to relieve himself. I think he probably went for a wee. Um, and David is in the cave, at the back of the cave, and literally catches Saul with his trousers down. Um, not metaphorically, literally, in having a wee. And the tables are turned. And David has found Saul in isolation and vulnerable, but he resists the calls of his men to kill Saul and says this to him. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in this cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hands. I cut off the corner of your robe, but, they, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, for evil doers, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. So here we see David showing extravagant generosity to Saul by not killing him. He's shown him love and mercy, um, and he's leaving the judgment bit to God, even though a lot of people would say, well, he was probably, in, you know, best thing to do would probably to kill him. Um, all of the circumstances made it easy for David to get revenge and retaliate and take Paul's life, but David chose peace over revenge. Peace is a choice, and here we see David make it. So as I said earlier, hopefully none of us will be put in that position um, in a cave where we see our enemy having a wee and we think we could kill him. So I was trying to think of other um, examples, and I came across this story about Abraham Lincoln, the great American president. Um, and before he, was, before he became president, Lincoln was a lawyer um, and was put on a case with a na- man named Edwin, Edwin Stanton. Um, from the offset, from what, I've under- what I understand, from what I've read, Edwin was unimpressed with Lincoln, um, and basically they were put on a case together um, and he didn't like him, so he made him look stupid in front of the whole court. Um, and then Lincoln went on to run for president. Stanton was one of his fiercest critics. Apparently took the mick out of it. He's a funny-looking fellow, Lincoln. We, we could put that picture up. They took the mick out of him, the way he looked, and all sorts. So when Lincoln was eventually um, made president, he got elected as president... The time came to choose his cabinet, and we're all familiar with that, as it's going on at the... Well, it's happened in the States. And Lincoln chose Stanton to be his war minister, or his war secretary, and there was immediate uproar in his inner circle. And people were asking, what are you doing? This, guy, this is the same guy. Do you realise who this guy is? He's the guy who was ridiculed you in court. He's your worst enemy. Why have you made him one of the most important positions in your government? Do you know who he is? And Lincoln replied, yes, I know Mr. Stanton. I'm aware of all the terrible things that he has said, said about me. But after looking over this nation, I find he's the best man for the job. 
how would we, in our own work settings, how would we respond to someone who persecuted us and tried to destroy our career? But then when we got made promoted and hit that person was the best person for the job, would we, could we honestly say that we would help that person do that job? So maybe we can relate to that story a bit more. You know, there was no death, there was no death threats involved. But Lincoln had the right attitude. Do not repay evil with evil. He later went on to say this quote up here. It's a different context, but I like the quote. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Well, how about Martin Luther King? This week, um, we've, in the staff team, they've been doing their Myers-Briggs, and I've done mine, and it's been a revelation. Um, but I've discovered that I've got the same personality type as Martin Luther King, so I can quote him. So the height of the civil rights movement, he preached um, a sermon called Loving Your Enemies. Um, and in this particular sermon, um, as a side note, if, if you want to hear a good sermon on loving your enemies, go and buy the book. I've got the book. You can borrow it. It is amazing. It is probably the best thing you'll ever read on loving your enemies. Um, and he talks about the different types of, the two different types of word for love in the, in the Greek. So there's eros, which is romantic love. So we've only got, obviously got one word for love. They've got three. So eros, which is romantic love. Uh, Philae, which is brotherly love or love between friends. And then agape, which is the love of God operating in a human heart. I've got a long quote here, so forgive me, but I think it's worth saying. So in the, this is what he says in this sermon. At this level, agape, we love men not because we like them, nor because their ways appeal to us, nor even because they possess some, kind of, uh, some type of divine spark. We love every man because God loves him. At this level, we love, the person who does, uh, we love the person who does the evil deed, although we hate the deed that he does. Now we can see what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. We should be happy that he did not say, like your enemies. It's almost impossible to like someone. Like is a sentimental and affectionate word. How can we be affectionate towards a person whose vowed aim is to crush our very being and place innumerable stumbling blocks in our path? How can we like a person who is threatening our children and bombing our homes? That is impossible. But Jesus recognized that love is greater than like. When Jesus bids us to love our enemies, he's speaking neither of eros or philae. He's speaking of agape, understanding and creativity. See, sorry, he's speaking of agape, understanding and creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. So Jesus calls us to make the right choice when we are dealing with our enemies, for those who've hurt us. Love is not the same, loving someone is not the same as liking them, but we are called to show the same grace, mercy, and generosity that God has shown us. Okay, so living generously is resisting revenge. So it says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So the reason we can pursue peace, despite the injustices of a situation, is that we have a hope that God will work everything out in his perfect justice in the end. Judgment and punishment are not our duties as individuals. As humans, we only ever have a limited knowledge of a situation. Whereas God knows the secrets of everyone's hearts, even those who hurt us. And and he is the only one who can judge, truly judge justly. That's a bit of a 
Powerful. So where we act out of passionate resentment towards those who've hurt us, God's act out of perfect knowledge. We can't, take respons- we can't take such a responsibility in your own hands. Who are we to do that? When someone hurts us in some way, we may, we may see our persecutors suffer the consequences of their actions. Sin often has, a natural, um, often has natural consequences in life. But if we don't see that, we need to wait patient, with patience, trusting that God resolve resolve it all. God is abundant, has been abundantly, um, sorry, abundantly patient with us. So we need to allow Him to be patient with others. It's in two Peter. It says, "The Lord isn't really isn't really slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent." This is great news for us when we consider our own mistakes, but it also means we need to be patient with those who have hurt us. He doesn't doesn't wish suffering on them, but wants them to come to the same place as you're at. God wants them to be redeemed redeemed to him, so so we should want that as well. But resisting revenge can be hard sometimes. If someone talks about us behind our back, we can sometimes think, in order to make things right or get even, we need to go and defend ourselves. But Jesus calls us to another way. So I think there's another slide, I think. Yeah, I'm just checking them in the right place. Yeah. So the last part of this, this verse um, says, on, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. So, I don't know about you, but we're generally okay with feeding people who are hungry and satisfying the thirst of those in need if we like them or they've not really done anything to us. Um, We can be... When someone says you need to feed you know, our friends or if our friend comes to us in need, then more often than not we can generally extend generosity to those people without too much of a bother. Or even strangers, you know, for a couple of guys in, in town that I walk through town that I can easily be generous towards. It's not hard, they've not done anything to me. Um, so I can buy them, you know, buy them a sandwich or something and it, and it doesn't, really, doesn't really bother me. Um, but what if our enemy came and asked for food or drink? Someone's been slandering you at work, dragging your name through the mud, um, talking about you behind your back, your self-esteem's at rock bottom, you can't take any more, this person's just been horrible for ages, and they, give you, they ring you up, you don't know whether to answer it, and they say, oh, will you buy me dinner? What would your response be to that? Like, No. As you can tell, I've not really learned anything. Good job, none of you are my enemies, because you could try it. I'm sure it wouldn't be. I'm sure you're holier than me. And he's like, oh, absolutely, yeah, let's go out. Where do you want to go? Um, I don't believe you've said that. But what if we were... Living in Syria, I know it's a slightly obscure um, 
example, but what if we were living in Syria? You're a Christian in Syria, ISIS troops come knocking on your door, banging on your home, demanding you cook them a meal after everything they've done to you and your family. Would you cook a meal because you're scared? Because you don't want them to do anything to you? Would you do it out of fear? Or would you do it because you're called to do it? This stuff's hard to swallow. It goes against every natural urge in our body. But we're called to positive action. And in doing so, it says here, Paul, uh, Paul says, we'll heap burning coals on their head, on the heads of our enemies. I've always really liked this metaphor, but I think I've liked it for the wrong reasons. When someone's done something to you or they've said something and you can sit around and say to, say to one, oh, we should just... We should pour burning coals on their heads. <laughs> some sort of holy-than-now attitude of, well, we'll be doing the right thing, but they'll feel really bad. I can imagine the pain and discomfort of pouring real hot coals on their head. Um, but we'll be blameless because we've done what God has said. We've been pouring hot coals on their head by being generous towards them, and then somehow that'll kind of make them squirm and feel uncomfortable and cause them pain, and we'll in a holy way, have got our own back. We've got revenge, but in a godly way. It's almost like a holy-than-now attitude. I'm going to rise above you, and I'm going to do this because I am holier than you. But apparently I've got that wrong. That's not, <laughs> that's not what it meant. This passage isn't to do with pain. It's not to do with taking a fire and throwing it in someone's face. It's not about getting revenge in a holy way. It's all to do with generosity. So at the time this was written, um, obviously they hadn't invented cookers um, as we know them. There weren't any gas-safe engineers to plumb them in, I think. Um, so they'd have a fire in their house where they'd do the cooking and all the heat of the house and stuff. And if your neighbour came to you because their fire had come out, gone out, you would give them a, um, some of your burning embers so they could go and restart their fire. And you would, you would carry it, I have to check my dad how you say this word, brazier, not a brazier. <laughs> you carry a, carry a brazier on your head full of hot coals. And a brazier, like a tray that you'd keep the hot coals in. And you would, they would carry that back on their heads. I'm guessing they put it on their heads because I don't know whether they carried everything on their heads. But I thought, maybe it's because the heat rises. If you carried it like that, you'd burn your face, wouldn't you? But I don't know. But they used to, heat the, they used to put the coals on their heads and then walk back to their house to start the fire again. So this idea of heaping coals is mean, means that you were being particularly generous. You weren't just giving them a little bit, but you were giving them way more, way more than they needed to start that fire by heaping them on. So if you look at it that way, rather than a holy-than-now kind of you know, way of getting your own back, this is, makes this passage even harder to swallow. Because not only is it saying that we need to feed our enemies and give them a drink if they're thirsty or feed them when they're hungry, we're called, here we're called to live a life of extreme generosity, literally pouring out everything we have on our enemies. Because it doesn't say, if your enemy comes and he's hungry, just give him enough to knock the edge off his hunger. Or if he's thirsty, give him a little sip so he doesn't feel thirsty anymore. What it's saying here is, heap the blessing onto him. Give them more than they could possibly need. But this 
whole premise sits better um, with what we know of Jesus in the wise words written in letters by his followers, such as Paul here in Romans. When we do good to our enemies, we follow the words and actions of Jesus. God's kindness is intended to bring us to a place of repentance, and Jesus teaches teaches this on the uh, topic in the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew 5, it says, this is Jesus preaching here to a, um, everyone when he was on top of the mountain. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who have persecuted you, that you may be a children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I'm not even the tax collectors doing that. This is tough stuff. What it's asking here is to go against our natural instinct to do unto others as they have done to us. We're being asked here to um, lean on our understanding of God, of God's justice and mercy, and draw from that. So what does it look like to, be, uh, to give forgiveness in, instead of resentment, or kindness instead of cruelty? Or words of encouragement instead of ridicule. So we shouldn't underestimate how difficult this stuff is. And it may require some radical change on our part. And sometimes acknowledging the hurt may be the first step before forgiveness can follow. And if forgiveness feels like too big a leap, then first we, want to, we need to pray that we want to forgive. And this is a giving that costs. This is the generosity that costs. So up to now... It hasn't been much cost because it's been, you know, serving the poor. They've not done anything to you. Then that, it takes action. You need to do something about it. But it isn't hard because they haven't done anything to you. you know, they've, not, they've not upset you or hurt you. So this is giving that actually costs. It's giving regardless of what they've done to you. It can be daunting, this stuff, thinking, I've got to take a deep breath and say, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't. That person has hurt me so much that I can't do what Peter's just said. It's just too hard. But whatever it is, whatever the, you've all probably got things in your mind. You might like me. You might be sitting there thinking, "I've not really been persecuted. No one's really done anything to me." Um, but I'm sure some of you sat there and you've even got names going in around your head now of people who have really, you know, done something horrible to you. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, "I can't. I can't do that. I can't pour." hot coals on their head in a positive way. I can't take them out for dinner. I can't, I can't forgive them. I can't even speak to them. But we've got to remember, whatever it is, Jesus did it first. He gave everything for us. 